0: book of Exodus discussing the Lord and how he has brought his how He brought the story of how he brought his people out of Egypt and now we are reading from Exodus 32 verses verses 1 through 14 and Exodus 34 verses 5 through 9. God has brought the Israelites out of Egypt but and Moses is up on Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments but as the people are waiting for him they do the unthinkable. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain The people gathered themselves to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of it. So Aaron said to him, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf, And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord on the mountain said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent, that he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them in the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head to the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. This is the word of God. Before I landed this
1: job, which is my dream job, and I love it, um, I was a window cleaner in Hilton Head Island, South Carolina, and um, it was uh, a great job in a lot of ways and a terrible job in other ways, but if you've been to Hilton Head, you know if you're going to go into a neighborhood, you don't just drive in, there's a gate. Everything in Hilton Head is a gated community, and if you're going to go work in there, like be a plumber or a window cleaner, you have to pay to get in. And it's like at least $20 to get in. So this one time, I, I left a tool in this one um, plantation. It was called Shipyard, and we had some, some bad nicknames for it that you could probably figure out. And, um, and I, I told the lady at, at, the, at the gate, I said, I just need to get a tool. I left a tool in there, and she wouldn't let me in, she wouldn't let me in. So finally, I just drove in, like I drove through the gate, and because um, I was really angry, and I have anger issues, and... I was pulled over. Anyway, long story short, I get this huge fine. It was like $650 I was going to have to pay, and, which was clearly more than I was making cleaning windows on Hilton Head. And anyway, I went to the court, and I um, was going to pull into a parking space in the parking lot, and there was another person. I let the person have the parking spot. Okay. When I get in, it was the judge. She was the one that was getting this parking spot. And she asked me how I pled. I said, I plead guilty. I was totally guilty. I was just like throwing myself on the mercy. Like, will you please lower it? Anyway, two weeks later, I get a notice from the city of Hilton Head that said, you have pled not guilty. And you were found not guilty. Like, the judge legitimately changed my plea. <laughs> um, which I'm not sure was super legal. And, but she, she was a mediator for me. She was a go-between. As far as it came to the law, I was dead. I was dead to rights. I was guilty. And I was just asking for mercy. And she stepped in between me and what I deserved. And she mediated for me. She interceded for me. And she was a go-between. And if you want to know what, what the heart of the Christian faith is about, it's all about this idea of a mediator. Someone that comes between you and what you should be getting to give you grace. And the uh, Israelites in, in, the, in our story tonight really did, as Silas said, do the unthinkable. And yet Moses mediates for them. And he shows us a lot of what Jesus looks like for us. And so what I want to do is I want to look at what the, what the Israelites did, why they did it. And then we'll look at this idea of a mediator. So what did they do? Um, they had literally just explicitly heard a voice from God on a mountain The first thing he said was, don't have any other gods beside me. And the second thing he said was, don't make an idol. Like you had one job, which was to not make something, not make a graven image to worship God by. Yet when Moses is gone on the mountain, they think maybe he's going to be gone for a couple days. But then days turn into weeks and they start to get a little freaked out because they're just in the middle of the wilderness. And so they go, you know what? This man, it's funny, this Moses, this guy, whoever he is. He's not coming back, so we got to take things into our own hands. You know, if you're going to do this religion thing, you got to do it right. If you want the job done right, you got to do it yourself. And so they, they get together, they melt down their earrings. Apparently they had a lot of earrings. Um, and everyone's sons and daughters and wives had earrings. Um, sounds like a really cool, like, Brooklyn hipster culture. Um, and they melted, they melt them all down, they make a golden bull, and they worship it. They make an idol. This is as as much idolatry as you could possibly imagine. The question is, why did they do that? Why is it the case that God brings them out of Egypt with this, all this amazing stuff, parts the Red Sea, you've seen the movie probably, and they're out here like a month later, and they're worshiping a cow, a, gold, a golden cow. Why would they do that? A guy named Stephen in the New Testament who gets stoned to death for being a Christian He's talking about this, and he says this about it. He says, Our fathers refused to obey Moses, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. He's saying, They're down there in the ground, Moses up on the mountain, their hearts turned to Egypt. They loved Egypt. These were God's people. He had saved them, but they had lived for 400 years in Egypt. Okay? They were definitely more Egyptian than they were. Israelite, right? They don't really know what it means to be an Israelite. So since they were basically Egyptian, when they got into a point where they were anxious about the future, they reverted back to what an Egyptian person would do. They made a gold idol, they made a a god of gold, and they worshipped it. And this is what we call pagan worship. This is not like a um, a negative term. I'm not saying that oh these dirty pagans. I'm saying this is pagan worship. A pagan worship is someone that says there are all these localized gods there's a god for people that do metalsmithing, there's a god for people that fish, there's a god of this village, there's a god of this town, there's a god of this country and everybody worships their own god, and they're treating the god of the universe like their own local private god, now we probably think that we don't do stuff like that, but I actually don't think that our cultural situation is that different Um, Tim Keller, who's a guy I listen to a lot, I listened to him recently, he said, we are pagans again. And basically what that looks like is we say, you know, I'm not into the Jesus thing, that's not my thing, you know, but I'm glad it works for you. You know, whatever, I want you to be happy, whatever makes you happy. Or you might say, I am a Christian person. I'm into the whole Jesus thing. He really brings me a lot of peace and joy in my life. But everybody has their own way of kind of getting through. And you just got to figure out what's the right thing for you. You know, you got to figure out what's the life balance for you. What's the right mix for you. Everybody has their own thing. You got to find out what works for you. And contrary to what we might believe, that's not how people have ever been before in the past. Like the cultural moment we live in of just like everybody is an individual that just needs to go find the thing that works for them has never been a cultural phenomenon until the last 100 or so years. Um, People have always derived their identity and their worth from their community or from their family. And it's actually a very Western, sort of humanistic, modern way to see the world. And even if you're a person here tonight and you say, I criticize that, yeah, I think that that's wrong, boo. You've been living in that your whole life. And I've been living in that my whole life too. And um, this idea that if something feels right to me, then it's right for me. Even if you criticize that and you have all your philosophical objections to it, you've been living in that your whole life. The Israelites bring their cultural baggage from Egypt with them to their relationship with God. And so do we. Okay? Does that make sense? If I pulled all the people in this room that you would, everyone that says, I'm a Christian. I would sign off on that. And I asked you the question, do you think our culture is headed in a positive or a negative direction? There would be a wide split in the room. There will be people in this room, all people that claim that, that like sort of say, yeah, I'm a Christian and I really believe in Jesus and all that. Some of you guys would say, I really, where we're going is really scary. And some of you guys will go, actually some really good things are happening and things are being made. If I went to your, if you grew up in a church, if I went to your parents' home church, right, and I polled them, probably a majority of them would say we're going in a bad direction usually. And if I polled this campus, the majority of campus would say we're going in a good and a positive direction. If I, and if I gave you any issue, if it was HB two or the presidential campaign, and I asked for your opinion, only Christians, there would be huge variance in opinion. And the question is, why is that? Why is it that people would say, my fundamental thing is Jesus, but we have hugely different views on very fundamental issues? It's because of your parents. It's because of your friends. It's because of your gender. It's because of your sexuality. It's because of the things that you're interested in. It's because of your career aspirations, your hometown. And that's great, but the reality is when we all come, that's part of what I love about the university is there's so many different kinds of people, but we have to recognize when we come to a relationship with God, we bring that cultural baggage <coughs> With us, and when you begin to feel scared or threatened or anxious, you revert back to the cultural water that you swam in your whole life, which is if it's okay with you, but it's not okay with me. And if I feel right about it, if I feel good about it, then it is true and right for me. And so, what happens? And we talked about this a couple weeks ago, but we'll bring it up again. Often, what happens is we will tack Jesus onto your cultural. Thing, the thing that you're excited about so you'll say Jesus completely when I when I look at Jesus I see him behind me hundred percent in my crusade for whatever cause or I see him behind me hundred percent in like opposing that cause whether you're preaching on Sanford Mall or protesting on Sanford Mall if you're a Christian a lot of times you will take Jesus and you tack him onto your thing um, and I, I've been rereading Harry Potter recently because they put out all the Harry Potter books into one Kindle book for $15, and they were speaking my language then. <laughs> that's a lot of heavy books, man. And, um, but the, if, you, if you read Harry Potter, you know there's this, there's this mirror in the first book called the Mirror of Erised, right? And when Harry looks in the mirror, do you guys remember what Harry sees in the mirror? He sees his parents, right. And do you guys remember when Ron Weasley looks in the, in the mirror, what he saw? He sees He's head boy of Hogwarts, right? He has the Quidditch cup. Because when you look in this mirror, it's Arisad, his desire spelled backwards. You see the thing that you want the most, right? You see, Harry never knew his family. So he saw himself with his family. Ron was the youngest brother in a family where everyone overshadowed him. So he wanted to be important and to matter. And when we make idols, when we make Jesus into an idol who just supports my thing, Um, We see him doing our thing. We see Jesus fulfilling our desires. Maybe he's the one that makes you feel superior when you go to a party and you're not drinking as much as everyone else because you're a Christian. And that gives you a sense of feeling entitled and superior in that group, whatever it is. Um, But Jesus isn't a pagan deity. Jesus is not like a provincial God of like a locality or like of of your village. Jesus is the Lord of heaven and earth, the maker of all things seen and unseen. And that means that everyone in this room and everyone on this campus and everyone indeed in the world, if you are going to come to Jesus, he is not going to support your thing. He's actually going to call you to support his thing, to get on board with his agenda Part of the beautiful thing about Jesus and the good news of Jesus is that there, he calls every single person. He welcomes you in without question and then calls every single person to change. He says, all of you have things. You're making idols out of me. Um, we thought about buying a house for a while in Boone, which is a terrible idea. I never do that. And Because um, you're like, I could buy this house for $100,000 in Hickory and it costs $700,000 I mean, in uh, Boone. It doesn't cost that much, but it's a lot. And um, the thing about houses in Boone is a lot of them are run down, but they're beautiful houses. But every house in this town is going to take, like, $100,000 of work to, like, get it to, like, decent livable condition. You guys would live there and just, like, smoke the place up. But, you know, to have a family, um, not so much. And in a, se- in a sense, this is, how, this is how God sees people. God sees human beings as these beautiful things that he made in, with, like, in his image, and they're amazing. And he says, I love this house. And then he comes in and he says, every single room in here needs work and is going to have to change because I want to make it beautiful and I'm not going to leave any part of this house unturned. We've all got Egyptian hearts in that sense, where we love the place that we came from and everybody here, whether you're a Christian or not, if you're going to come to Jesus, you have to be taught how to become God's people. And that's why we say this all the time at RUF, that nobody here has it all figured out. RUF and the church is supposed to be a place where everybody feels like, I need to change, but I'm accepted here. The Israelites reduced God to a two-bit deity, and so do we. Okay, So here's what I want to do. I want to look at how God responds to that. Because this is some of that Old Testament stuff where we're like, I don't really like this because God seems mean. And God's talking about like holiness and like wiping people out, and that makes me super uncomfortable. I want to talk about how God responds, and then I want to talk about a mediator. So how does God respond? He says to Moses, hey, you need to go down there. I'm about to wipe all these people off the face of the earth. So it's pretty bad. Um, he says, look, I'm going to wipe them all out, and I'm going to start over with you. In verse 10, he says, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them. And I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you, Moses. He says, I'm not going to break my promises. I'm going to do everything I said I was going to do. But I'm going to level all these people. And I'm going to keep my promise through this one guy. I'm just going to do that. And he would have been absolutely within his rights to do that. But does that seem unfair to us? Probably. Probably that sounds extreme and and intense. And it is extreme and it is intense. But imagine this. Imagine you're dating someone... And some of you, you know, you're like, that sounds fun. Um, And uh, and it's not that fun, really. Dating sucks. Um, And so you're dating this person, and some of you guys have experienced this, and it's like they insult you to everyone else. Like, oh, she's all right. Or like, yeah, he's okay. Or, and even worse, they're like, but my old girlfriend. Or my old boyfriend. That was some good times, man. And then you find out that they're not just talking about how great it was. They're texting their old boyfriend. They're texting their old girlfriend and setting up a rendezvous. Let's just leave it at that. (coughs) To us, that's a personal offense because you as as an individual are being called into question and being devalued. And to us, God's responses to sin sound so intense because we think that it's just like some breaking of some rules or something that makes me feel bad. But it's actually God's people, the Israelites, they, God rescued them and has given them grace and is making them a new people. And they're basically hooking up with Egypt. They're, seriously, they're old lovers. They, one of the most powerful things to me in the Bible is that God's people are people that love their old lovers and want to go back to their old lovers. God says they've corrupted themselves. They've turned away from me. Until you begin to understand that sin is not just something that makes you feel bad. Or something that is like theoretically wrong. But as an insult to the God who made you. Then none of this make, will make sense. And I can't make this make sense to you. It's not just immorality. It's adultery. Um, it's adultery. Why does that seem so extreme to us? Um, just last night my boss was in town. And he's, like, he's about 10 years older than me, and his oldest daughter is about to turn 15. He's taking her to Chicago to see Bieber. And I'm like, you're a good dad. Um, I want to go to see Bieber in Chicago. And, um, but we were talking about... Some of you guys are going to experience this. You're going to get married in the next few years, and you're going to have a couple kids, which I know sounds insane. But it's going to happen. And I'll be watching you on Facebook and remembering (laughs) it. And, um... And what's going to happen is your parents, who have loved you and like given all for you, you're going to be like, I want you to come visit. I want you to stay in a Hampton Inn and not in my house. And I want you to stay for three days maximum. That's I'm not kidding. That's going to be what you want. okay? And from your parents' perspective, when they're like, I just want to stay another day, and you're like... <laughs> All your parents see is like holding your little fingers and like helping you learn how to walk, you know, from their perspective. That's what they see. And that is so hard once you have kids to realize when they grow up and they get like when my oldest daughter, Georgia, gets married, which will probably be like 20 years from now. That's not that long. She'll only want me to come for like a couple days and then she will be super over me and want me to leave because the reality is your parents will love you more than you will ever love them. And you will love your children more than your children will ever love you. And you will not be able to understand the existential pain it is for them to have brought you along and then stay at the Hampton Inn for three days. That's just how it goes. And we, that's a human to human relationship. Okay. And there is so much difference in like love and like existential feeling of love. We can't even begin to fathom how much, what it must be like for God for us to turn away from him. say, It is just cosmically sad and cosmically upsetting. And in a real sense, God just goes, I'm done. I'm done. And I, I don't want to soften that. Because I think some of us in this room that, that think about God or read the Bible or whatever, we're like, yeah, yeah. And we want to figure out a way to sort of like make sense of that. God says, I'm done with you. He's not like pretending. He's not like, oh, I'll say I'm done. And then Moses will do X, Y, Z, and then it'll be fine. He's literally saying, I'm done. So what do they need? They need a mediator. They need someone to come in between because it's going to happen. Look. If Moses had not argued before God, God would have wiped out every single person except Moses. Like, he means it. But when Moses comes, he argues to God, and he legitimately gets God to change his mind. I have no idea what that means. Okay? And I'm not going to, like, help you understand what it means, because I don't know. When we pray, we assume that God's going to hear it and respond to you. Um... He gets, God, he gets him to change his mind. God would have kept his promises. Um, he actually keeps arguing with him throughout chapter 33 and 34 until God says, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to make all my old promises to you. Moses mediates. I want to show you three things that he does to mediate because this shows us Jesus. Okay, so if you, were, if you were zoning out, this is what Jesus is all about. The first thing he does is he appeals to God's character and promises. He says, God, these are your people. He doesn't say they're just a people. He says, These are your people. You brought them out of Egypt. They belong to you. And he says, You made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, these old promises. Remember your promises, okay? He appeals to God's character, his promises. He identifies with God's people. This is so beautiful. Look, God says, I'll burn it down and start over with you. Moses is going to be fine no matter what. And look at the end of the passage, at the very end of your sheet. He says, If I found favor in your sight, Oh, Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. Pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. He says, I'm with these people. I'm part of them. If you're, going to, if you're going to embrace me, you have to embrace them. My daughter was getting in the car tonight. And my, look, when you have kids, you're just like, whoever gets their shoes on and gets in the car and buckles in first gets a lollipop. Um <laughs> Because you just don't want to hear. There's no argument that needs to happen about getting in the car and getting, a little, you know. And so my oldest daughter Georgia gets in. She has the straps on. She's a moment from buckling it. And her little sister, who's three, is just getting into the seat. And she looks at my wife and she says, "I'm going to win." <laughs> Clearly. If I win, can Bonnie still have a lollipop? Yeah. And so, and my wife says yes. And so Georgia unbuckled herself and got out, and she buckled her sister into the seat. And then she got in, and she buckled herself in. Because Moses says, I'm going to be okay, I'm going to completely identify with you and serve you. It's a beautiful thing. And And this is the last thing Moses does. Moses recognizes that God's wrath is legitimate. Moses doesn't say, like, hey, you're overreacting. He doesn't say, dude, you're so intense about sin, like, get over it. He, doesn't, he says, no he says, no, this is a stiff-necked people. Absolutely everything that you've said you should do, you are within your rights to do it. Um, you're right. We are totally unfaithful. You're legitimate. okay? What's on display here is what a friend of mine his name is Reggie Hunt, and he passed his cornerstone Summit, He calls the God dilemma. And that's this: God loves people and God hates sin. okay? There's nothing that he loves more than people, and there's nothing he hates more than sin. And Satan, his his enemy, can't really attack God or get at God. So what he did was he tempted people. And when people fell into sin, sin was put into them. So now, the thing that God loves the most is filled with the thing God hates the most. Does that make sense? If God loves them, loves us, he's a hypocrite. But if God hates us, then he loses what he loves. Does that make sense? It's a crazy dilemma. Jesus solves that dilemma by being a mediator for us. And here's what that means. Just like Moses, Jesus appeals to God's character and promises. Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. He says, God, you love the world. That's why you sent me. Jesus... um, Identifies with his people. This is amazing. Jesus became a human being. So you could say, It's us. It's your people. I'm part of these people. I'm completely. Ident-. Do you know what it's like when someone identifies with you? Like, like, you've ever been to the hospital and someone came up and sat with you? Or you're just nasty and something bad has happened to you and someone comes and sits with you, it's amazing, it's powerful. Jesus identifies, or, someone, or you're going through something hard and someone says, I know exactly what you're going through. And they're not just BSing, because they've been there. They've been through that. It's a powerful and amazing thing. Jesus became one of God's people to save God's people. But this is the money point, point. this is why I want to leave you with. Jesus recognizes that God's wrath is legitimate. He doesn't say you're overreacting. If there's anything the cross with Jesus hanging on should show us, is that Jesus took God's wrath very, very, very seriously. Um, And 1 John chapter 1 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How is it that God is just to punish Jesus? Or how is it that God is just to forgive you? Because Jesus drank down that wrath. He stood between you and God and he absorbed that wrath so that now it would be unjust for God to punish you if you're in Jesus. If you belong to Jesus, God only won't punish you. He can't. Everything that he had to judge your sin, he poured it out on Jesus. And now Jesus ever lives to intercede for us is what the Bible says. That he's with God all the time going, "It's, it's on me. They're with me. It's on It's on me. It's on my blood. Look at my blood. Their sins are paid for, and they're yours. And there's a movie from the late 80s called Fisher King. And if you haven't seen it, I would really highly recommend it to you. And because it has Jeff Daniels and Robin Williams in it. So it's pretty good. It's Jeff Daniels, right? That's who? True Grit? The Lebowski? Bridges. Jeff Bridges, thank you. Jeff Daniels is the guy from Independence Day. Um, so not the same guy. Um, Jeff Bridges and uh, Robin Williams... And basically what happens in this movie is uh, Jeff Bridges is like a Howard Stern, like uh, radio, shock, shock kind of guy. And a dude calls in and says, I'm going to kill myself. And, you know, this, this is a classic, like, you know, whatever, like the pompous radio guy. And he says, you're not going to do it. Go do it. You're a coward. You're not going to do it. And what the guy does is he ends up walking to a restaurant, shooting up a restaurant full of people and, and killing himself. And that's how the movie starts. So, you know, just like brace yourself. And he ends up becoming friends with Robin Williams, who is a guy that has sort of, um, very experienced something very traumatic because he was sitting next to his wife when she was shot in this restaurant, and they end up becoming friends. And it's a really powerful movie, but there's this one part where Jeff Bridges says um, to his wife, he says, "I just, I wish there was some way I could just pay the fine and go home. You know that? I just want to, I just want to pay it. I just, can I just pay?" The debt and don't like, do you ever feel that way? Like, I wish I could just like pay whatever it was and it would just get off my back. Um, Jesus paid it for you. That's what it means for Jesus to be a mediator. That what was owed to you, Jesus paid it. And that means if you're here tonight and you put your trust in Jesus, you are quite different from these Israelites. There is no way that God could ever leave you or would ever leave you. God will not decide to judge you or leave you because Jesus has gone between you and God. Um, You will continue to sin if you're a Christian. It's going to haunt you your entire life. You will love Egypt for the rest of your life. Um, But Jesus continues to go between for us. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, um, there, I know this, this might be falling on like just, you're like, okay, Whatever. But I want to ask you a favor. When whatever the thing is that you're really pursuing right now fails you in the next couple years, and you realize the things that I want suck and they hurt me, all I'm asking to you is at that moment, remember that Jesus stands ready to go in between and to save you from those things. Jesus is a good mediator, and he loves you. Uh, Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your goodness and your grace. Thank you that you stand between us. God, you would be absolutely um, within your rights to wipe us out. um, Because we have been so offensive and we don't even realize it. Um, But Jesus, thank you that you have been gracious to us. Would you show us how to to, to live um, as people that are bought by you? And um, Lord, if there are any here tonight that... Are trying to figure out what this means, or would you just make them curious? I'm praying in Jesus' name. Amen.